Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. This week I spoke to Yanis Varoufakis. Yanis Varoufakis is a Greek economist, academic, philosopher and politician, a former member of Saritsa. He served as Minister of Finance from January to July in 2015. He's the co-founder of the international grassroots movement DM25. And in 2019, he won an election as one of its representatives in the Greek parliament. He's currently Professor of Economics at the University of Athens. And his new book, Another Now dispatches from an alternative present is released this month i just spoke to yanis varoufakis just this second ago and why i enjoy talking to him you should listen to the previous episode i did with him five years ago also that was brilliant this time i talked about how do you ever unify the various fragments of the left is there a hope of an alternative future how do we incorporate technology into a new utopia does he acknowledge the necessity for spirituality in any real movement for or change it's a really really good conversation i think you're going to love it he's an extremely smart man and remember this is a person who has been at the heart of institutional power who has sat down with uh, administrators at the eu who knows what it's like to campaign to win an election you know in a sort of in greece and actual country so um check it out you'll enjoy it but i mean you're going to now at this point aren't you you're not going to switch off when you're so close to glory mailing list old son it's your time to shine get over a russellbrand.com and sign up for my mailing list i tell you why because we're doing zoom calls now where we raise money for really good causes like for example i might get a new hat no we're like uh, like for like there's different charities we're raising money for treasures that's a, a charity for women dealing with addiction uh what's the other one bac o'connor who else do you think we should help the mix we'll probably help them at some point if you've got any charities you're interested in jen just yourself jen <laughs> jen might like to go on another holiday <laughs> I don't think that's ethical, Jen, but we'll look into it. Perhaps we can if this is going to if we're going to run our company democratically, which we're not. Then we could uh, then we could really really look into that. We could get swept up in Yanis's dream of democracy. He's been true to his Greekness even to this day. You can say Greekness, I think. Greekness ain't a weakness, baby. It's a compliment. That's what I've always said. So yes, yeah, sign up to uh, russellbrand.com because I'm thinking of doing some live events. Because you know what? I'm beginning to think that coronavirus is a hoax. <laughs> that's a joke. Coronavirus is obviously real. Um, that's, that's plain as day. I'm just saying we'd do some socially distanced, mask-wearing live events. How about that? Would you have to wear a mask? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, how could I? When people would be able to hear me talky-talky. You could put a little mic inside the mask. Ooh, I don't like the sound of that. It's like having a wasp trapped in there. No, I won't do that, Jen. Because we're doing that one at Regent's Park, aren't we? That's an outdoor event. Yeah. Tickets all, all sold out, I'm afraid to tell you. But we could, I think we could do things in a field. <laughs> like with bales of hay. Yeah. Picture it. Dusk. Bales of hay. A lone man swathed in white walks across the sunset sky. Is that the sound of angels I hear? Uh, on yonder Brie it's me uh, and then I come out and I do some jokes people are sat there with masks and all that kind of stuff masks on outside no they don't have to even wear masks outside do they no. so anyway but even for now we're doing these zoom call ones five quid a pop money goes to you know then people have just said treasures BAC O'Connor good basically helping drug addicts and the mentally ill who if you're listening to this podcast you probably actually also are a drug addict and mentally ill you may be in recovery 
but who isn't mentally ill how could you not be mentally ill living in this you know zoo <laughs> this dystopic zoo that's what I'm calling it you can get in touch on social media if you want to here's some of your comments for the episode I've done with Bill Burr did you like the episode I've done with Bill Burr Django yeah it's one of my favourites why yeah. Um, I like even the clip, the rabbit psychopath clip that we released. That was yeah, good, wasn't it? it? And stuff about mental health and suicide. <laughs> it was really lovely. I got a lot of compliments from people like saying about the moment when Bill Burr was moved to tears. It's kind of lovely, isn't it? It's particularly as Bill Burr is such a kind of... I see him as a very forthright, on the front foot type of comic. He's not like a... Doesn't seem super sensitive, but of course you'd have to be super sensitive to come up with the brilliant material he regularly creates. So here's some of your comments. You've heard mine. You've heard Jen's. Jen, who's taken a brief break from her life of holidays to do a bit of work. How was? <laughs> did you have a nice time in Switzerland? Yeah, my first holiday in three years. Oh come! On, what about Australia? This <laughs> was work. It's not I was watching you, Jen. You were treating it like a holiday. Work. You barely did anything. You were mostly sunbathing, which is very dangerous for an Irish person with your kind of complexion. Let's have a listen to some of these comments from Bill Burr, from genuine people, real people who you can trust. This person says, who I think is called The Dot Right, at Russell Brand and at Wilfred Burr, my favourite interviews are Russell's with comedians. Oh, and Neil deGrasse Tyson, who's a cosmic comedian. Gah, I can't get enough of Russell Brand interviewing comedians. It makes my life better. Then it's like those praise you like I should hands. Why are you opening the door, Jen? I'm just leaving. <laughs> exactly where you are. Still at work. What do you want? Need another holiday? It's a bit too long. Half a day of, of toil. Polly Peeps 87 goes, so glad Wilfred Bird joined. I saw him live in Liverpool once, front row, and he was incredible. Such a funny guy. Epic Russell loved it. Also, those praise you like I should hands. Hey, those praise you like I should hands. Like That's what they're called. That's what that emoji is called. Praise you like I should hands. You know, praise you like I should. Uh, Vision underscore Aries underscore seven goes, love Wilfred Burr. What a legend. So on Twitter, he's called at Wilfred Burr. Nice. Zach Markey, this one hooked me into luminary modern day philosophers. That's how I see myself as a modern day philosopher. Should we go into the episode with Yanis Varoufakis strapping because it's going to be an education. You're going to go to another dimension. You're going to get some genuine information that might elucidate you, take you somewhere where you've not previously been before and give you hope and optimism that change is genuinely possible. Plug yourself into some nutritional information. Step outside of the miasma of negativity that is engulfing your life. The real pandemic is ignorance. Let's listen to Yanis Varoufakis. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that, route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand. Under the Skin. Yanis, thank you so much for coming on Under the Skin. It's really lovely to see you again. It's wonderful seeing you again, uh, even though the circumstances um, you know, were absolutely uh, unpredictable last, last time we met. 
They certainly were. I think about our first conversation a lot. It had a great deal of influence on me. It made me think about the nature of power. You told me one thing about when you were in meetings at the European Union, you recognised that everyone there was restricted by the formation of their roles, that people weren't truly free to make significant alterations. You talked to, um, uh, you told me once, you told me a story about like a, a woman that said when she was uh, brushed off by the police, uh, like, that she, they said, who, who do you think you are? And she said, who do I have to be? Like you told me about that. I think like, uh, and you, we also talked about the nature of spirit and matter because of my belief that spirituality is a necessary component in any, uh, would for any forthcoming radical change. And I would argue that the rise of the populist right is because there is a de facto spiritual element embedded in the nationalism from which it, is uh, uh, what do I want to say that, that gives it its charge that gives it its emotional charge well how have the events of the last five years altered your view about how to change the world and the limitations of leftism it's a question of degree I, I have not undergone an, a great epiphany over the last five years uh, I wish I had uh, you know my, my problem has been more um, th that unfortunately my worst fears and expectations were confirmed by the last five years. The you know you, you you're, you're talking about the spiritual zeitgeist of nationalism. That you know we did see that in Brexit. We're seeing this in the United States with uh, the supporters of Donald Trump, with right wingers here in Greece. Um, there is something of a zeitgeist. You're quite right. And it is a reaction to the Washington consensus, if you want, to the neoliberal um, um, propaganda of um, 30 years now, that, um, you know, the world works like clockwork, and, you know, there are laws of nature and laws of science that um, uh, point to austerity for the many and socialism for the few. And, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, at some point, people stop believing that. And unfortunately, uh, when they stop believing it, we of the left um, are nowhere near to be found to provide them with, uh, you know, the spiritual um, escape route. Uh, and, and, and the Nazis and the fascists and the xenophobes are there doing it. And don't forget that, you know, people like Mussolini and Hitler in the 1920s and 30s invested heavily in feeling, in emotions. Um, it, it, it goes with the territory. Capitalism collapses, discontent builds up, and then some fascist gets up on a soapbox and says, I'm going to make you proud again to be who you are. And that's extremely powerful. You know, it, it does not use Treasury or, you know, Bank of England statistics. Uh, it does not pretend to be scientific. Uh, it, it, it touches people's uh, spiritual need to be acknowledged. Um, as those who have been not left behind, but held behind by an establishment mm -hmm. who really are clueless about how to even save themselves during this uh, wholesale crisis. Uh, but we of the left are responsible for allowing the space for the right to take over and to be the ones who speak to the heart of people. We are the problem, the left. Yes, I, I, I 
completely agree with you. There's two things that I wanted to pick up. What is, I agree with you on what you said about the kind of moral collapse of the left, the hollowing out of the left, the left becoming a sort of a fatic and theatrical movement about symbolic gestures and cultural equality as opposed to economic equality, causing it to become a kind of a disassociated and, uh, and I think ultimately meaningless movement, certainly in countries like this one and, and, and the rise of Trump and Brexit and some of the other examples you cited all point to that. The other thing that's sort of bloody glaringly obvious but seldom picked up on is that politics has to engage with the way that we feel, our feelings. And you're right about those sort of those uh, uh, demagogic figures in the 30s that they they mobile like you know like if if the left has become about a kind of hollow and brittle theater of symbolic gestures and a kind of uh like the sort of empty hollow cultural politics then the right has customarily or traditionally at least engaged with a deeply personal sense of purpose and meaning and that does seem to be happening again why do you think that the kind of left-wing populism that seemed to be emerging at the time that uh Syriza temper briefly had power and the and podemos emerged and beppe grillo although i know he's sort of a little more complex why do you think that has been has faded out and been usurped by uh, uh, the right-wing alternative what why has that failed let me be very damning towards uh a government in which I was a member. We betrayed the cause. You know, left, leftists from all over the world invested so much hope in what we did here in Syriza in 2015. Because remember, I mean, it was a miracle. Uh, the the so-called alliance of uh, the radical left was a party scoring 3% year after year after year in opinion polls as well as in general elections. And within two years, we went from 3% to 36%. We won government. And we won government with a very clear mandate, a very clear mandate, simply not to uh, surrender to the financialized uh, capital that was uh, wrecking this country, and Europe, for that matter. Uh, and you know, I had the author authorization of my prime minister to come out and make such big statements that you know I, I would say things like, and I meant them. I would prefer to, you know, to have my arm chopped off from the shoulder than to sign a surrender document. And uh, that created a huge wave of excitement and optimism going all the way to Latin America. I mean, I had people from Latin America saying that they were looking at what we were doing in Greece. And then, you know, on the night of the 5th of July of 2015, when the Greek people upped the ante by giving us not 36%, but 62% of the vote in a glorious referendum, going against the grain of financial capital, against the grain of the mass media that were demonizing those who would vote for against the, you know, the troika of lenders, against the establishment, and 62% ignored the, those threats and voted no. And what happens that night, my prime minister and colleague at the time surrendered and signed on the dotted line. The whole thing collapsed like a house of cards. Podemos, who had invested every ounce of optimism, and also part of their narrative, you know, the, part of the narrative in Spain was, we'll do it like the Greeks. And then what happens is, because you know, the enemy are very good at um, planning and plotting, um, the right-wing prime minister 
of Spain, Mr. Rajoy, after Tsipras, my prime minister, signed on the surrender document, came out of the building in Brussels where that signature had, you know, been transcribed onto paper. And he was holding the surrender document in front of Spanish television camera saying, this is what you get if you vote for the left. So Podemos collapsed. They became co-opted. Now they are part of a, of a, of a government that is completely establishment uh, friendly. Um, and look, the, the two other major events of the last five years have been, one is the Jeremy Corbyn phenomenon in Britain, and the other was the Bernie Sanders phenomenon. And look at the way that both of them were usurped. They were not usurped so much by opposition from the right, from, uh, you know, uh, the financiers. Of course, the financiers and the right were gung-ho against Sanders and, and Corbyn. No, no, no. They were overthrown within their own parties. Mm-hmm. These are the lessons we have to learn. Um, this, and, 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 you know, we, we need to find ways of recovering from that. It's not easy because once a popular movement has been... Um, forced to return home and privatize their fears and hopes again. It's very difficult to get them out again. Privatize. Once it stops being a public phenomenon, once you lose that sense of uprising and unity. I was thinking, Anis, when he was talking there, mate, about uh, that uh, initial surge in Greece that took you from 3% via 36% all the way to 62%. How much of that uh, tide rose upon feelings of nationalism, even if that wasn't an explicit part of your narrative? Do you think that a feeling of we are a nation resisting this external bureaucratic financial force, how much of the mobility of that rise was garnered from feelings of nationalism, even if it wasn't the kind of nationalism we're witnessing now? Well, Russell, what I'm very proud of regarding those people, those very courageous people, is that they had the intelligence not to fall for a nationalist narrative. They were patriotic. They were proud to be, you know, a body of Greek people doing this against the ironclad lenders of the international financial community. They had a sense that they were Greeks working, you know, together for their country, but also for Europe. And they, if you ask them, this is, you know, this is what commentators could not fathom. Opinion polls would say 60-65% supported us against Brussels, against the European Central Bank, against the, the European and international financial establishment. And at the same time, if you ask them, so do you want to get out of, uh, out of the European Union? The very same people, the crushing majority of the very same people said, no, no, we don't want to get out of the European Union. Why do we need to succumb to the worst financiers in the world, to the worst loan sharks in the world, um, um, or get out of the European Union? I mean, what kind of a trade-off is this? So, no, but what has happened since then, once this movement collapsed, and once people started, as I said before, privatizing their angst and being atomized, being separated, not being part of a movement, but being encased in the private realm. All it took was, you know, a few thousand wretched souls 
disembarking on the shores of our islands from Syria, from Afghanistan, from Pakistan, you know, the wretched migrants, for the combination of the feeling of humiliation, of the loss of the movement, of the togetherness, and of that patriotism, uh, and the sight of these people who were coming in, that the media were telling them, telling the Greek people that, you know, these are a threat, who are being weaponized by Turkey and by all sorts of, you know, um, um, interests uh, that are plotting against the country, it was heart-wrenching to watch nationalism take hold after that and xenophobia. The result being that we now have a government in place. They were elected about 13 months ago. Um, our Tories are now in, parliament, in, pa in power, in government at least. Um, and they have gone you know, just absolutely berserk of their rocker with nationalism and xenophobia. They are, you know, a version of Orban in, in Hungary. Um, they are demonizing the foreigners. And unfortunately, this is now having an impact in the population because of our defeat. You know, once the, the, the popular front of the left was defeated, the gates opened up to xenophobia. Well, I wonder how it can. I wonder how it can ever rise it rise again. I'm a few things that uh, struck me as most most interesting in, in, in what you just said is about this again this retreat into a private space because this deals with the nature of being an individual in a world that prizes fate and promotes individualistic ideas it gives a great advantage to right-wing ideology predicated on ideas of self and greed that is ideas that are essentially pessimistic about human nature, pessimistic about the idea of people coming together in community. And it's difficult to see how, it, how to promote ideas of community, solidarity, power among ordinary people in light of such recent events as those which you have described. Furthermore, I, I would love for you to further explain why it's usually members of the purported left that bring down that bring down populist leftist candidates such as Jeremy Corbyn or Bernie Sanders what that that that, that these candidates don't really get the opportunity to fr to thrive on an on a national scale because within their own party there is such resistance even with a figure like Corbyn who of course did you know, become the leader of his party we, there's a sense that it was internal opposition as you explained that really undid him why is it why is it that has the left already been so deeply co-opted by centrist m moderate interests that uh, that they're or not even moderate you know it's essentially right-wing interests that there is no way back for these parties well let me answer at two different levels one is more specific historically specific to bernie sanders and jeremy corbyn these are two parties the democratic party and the labor party that have been co-opted by the system a very very long time ago the Labour Party since the 1926 um, great, you know, general strike betrayal. <laughs> uh, the Democratic Party probably from the very, very beginning. It was never a progressive party. Uh, and 
it, it was clear in both cases that it was the establishment within these two parties uh, which um, uh, effectively traded on offering a lighter version of standard right-wing policies uh, in a bid to differentiate themselves from the Tories, from the Republicans in the United States, uh, while never threatening the very fabric of financialized capitalism, never becoming a threat to the establishment. And then you have somebody like Jeremy Corbyn and uh, Bernie Sanders coming up, posing a threat to the established order, garnering a lot of support from young people in particular, in both countries, countries the United Kingdom and the United States, who entered those parties from, as outsiders and almost took them over. And what happened was, both in the case of Jeremy Corbyn and, and uh, Bernie Sanders, was the machinery of the party coalesced, they got serious about the business of overthrowing these usurpers, as they saw it. But the problems of the left are broader than that. Um, one, you know, I've been on, in, in the left and on the left and in left-wing movements ever since I was a very young teenager. And I remember the influence that a young anarcho-syndicalist had on me a young anarchist influenced by the sort of anarcho-syndicalism of the Spanish Civil War era. Uh, he said to me once, um, I remember I was very young, he said, Comrade, there is one thing we must beware more than capital, and that's power. Um, and this is why you will recall that in the Spanish Civil War, the anarcho-syndicalists flag had two colors, red and black. Red to symbolize the revolution, you know, energy, enthusiasm, vigor, and black to remind us of the blackness within each one of us that um, is prone to being lured by power into becoming monsters, even within left-wing movements. I have watched people, even, you know, in tiny little outfits, left-wing outfits, in university departments, getting a whiff of you know, even small amounts of power and suddenly being transformed into, into bloody monsters, <laughs> right? I mean, the Gulag happened in the, in the Soviet Union precisely because of that. Because some, you know, there were some excellent comrades who participated in bringing about the collapse of the Tsarist regime in 1917. But then there were others, like Stalin, for instance, who used the energy of the revolution um, sort of summoned those powers that it had unleashed in order to turn them onto the side of, the, of, of darkness, the black part of the anarcho-syndicalist flag. And we must always be aware. We have this blackness inside of us. And I think that we must always beware uh, that blackness. It is what, it's what makes revolutions fail. It's what makes revolutions eat their children. It is what makes them, in the end, create the gulag, where the communists imprison the communists, where the Christians kill the Christians, where all those movements, the purpose of which was originally to change the world, in the end, um, fail to change the world. Um, they change themselves more than they change the world. And um, they create new forms of tyranny within the progressive movements. So we have, this is not an argument against the revolution. 
it's not an argument against progressive movements because you know without progressive movements and without revolutions we are doomed but it is an argument for bewaring you know uh, for being aware of the danger that a revolution um, is pregnant with if it creates power that is not democratically dispensed within the movement wow all right so uh, I love that thing about the blackness in the flag being a sort of a, a physical or emblematic demonstration of the shadow of the potential for darkness in all of us and how even in uh, uh, small institutions you can recognise how the, the, the corrupting effect of power. And on a personal note, you will remember around the time that you and I last spoke, I was doing a lot of very uh, left wing oriented and uh, community focused online videos a kind of deconstruction of news at, that, that sort of led towards political activism i got a lot of attention i was like on lots of news shows and uh got lauded by some loathed primarily by the left i might add it was like always the sort of liberal left-wing media that were sneering contemptuous undermining and attacking like much more than the right who just sort of you know ignored me i suppose and on a personal level i remember that the feeling of attention and power how corrosive it was how unconsciously not consciously how unconsciously i started to think that i was the destination of the attention and energy as opposed to a conduit how my ego effortlessly colonized the feelings of power how i started to think that i was what was important now like to if this can be argued to be an ordinary human tendency i.e a natural human tendency that somewhat yields to the pervading idea of the right a pessimistic idea that human beings are ultimately individualistic they're ultimately selfish they will be corrupted by power look after yourself look after your family there's no such thing as society you can see how that you can see how um clear and closely ad adhered to the ideals of a progressive movement must be. And I wonder, Yanis, given that the ex the origins of the left, and well, as you know, I'm sure you obviously know a lot more than me about this, but like in t the left as we understand it begins with you know the Russian Revolution and uh, like subsequent left wing revolutions in. China, elsewhere, have all fallen foul of this tendency, have all uh, migrated to the black half of that flag. And my sense is that this is because they're... How, how do you, if you are a materialist, if your ideology is ultimately materialistic, ultimately led by economics, how do you maintain a kind of spiritual righteousness when, when you are consumed by the black half of the flag, as you inevitably will be as a human being? What checks and balances can be place, put in place? And how can it not just be bureaucratic? How can it be uh, romanticised? How can it be mythologised? <sighs> There is no doubt that the Thatcherite neoliberal narrative is extremely powerful. And it was made all more powerful by the Gulag, by the failures of the left to respect its democratic principles. Once upon a time, Friedrich von Hayek, the great guru of Thatcher and of the neoliberals, said something that was spot on. He said the problem with socialism is that um, to, to enact it, 
you must do things that socialists themselves reject as immoral. Um, so, you know, okay, I'm not agree agreeing necessarily with him, but there is a point there. But there is good news as well, that the opposite applies as well. To enact neoliberalism, you need to do stuff that goes against the grain of the, the cherished principles of liberalism. So, um, you know, I mean, Thatcher was um, proposing a minimalist state, a state that gets out of the way of people's lives, lets individuals rule the roost, um, you know, gives them most power, and the state simply withers, um, playing a tiny little role in providing the police and the courts and the rule of law, within which people can actually do their own thing without having a nanny state um, or a tyrannical state over them. Now, of course, the reality, as we very well know, is that Thatcher always understood this to be uh, false uh, and impossible. This is why when she left 10 Downing Street, she left the state bigger, more powerful, and more tyrannical than ever, right? <laughs> so neoliberalism requires um, a tyrannical state, a completely illiberal state, in order to impose rule by capital markets. Uh, <laughs> and so we must never forget that. Um, going to, to a more philosophical or spiritual point of view, if you want. Look, um, the neoliberals keep talking about the individual, right? And about individualism. Now, it sounds pretty good to say that, you know, in the end, you, Russell, or you, Kate, or you, Bob, or you, Harriet, you know best what's good for you. Nobody else knows better than you what's good for you. That sounds very empowering and liberating. Um, but this individualism, treating the, the person as an atom, as an atom, as uh, an isolated self, an entity whose preferences, beliefs, can be defined outside the community. That is to create a caricature um, of a, I call it homo economicus, as opposed to homo sapiens, uh, that is a sad bastard, really. Because the only way you can be a genuine person, as opposed to an isolated individual, is if you enter into a dialogue with others. I mean, take language. As Wittgenstein said, quite accurately, there can be no such thing as a private language. Language is by definition something that we create collaboratively. It is impossible for me to have my Yanis language and for you to have your Russian language. Because, you know, firstly, there is no point in creating uh, a private language. You, what's the point? if it, you don't create it with some other people in order to communicate. Similarly, the same thing that applies to language applies to almost everything. Our conception of the good, our conception of what is fair, what is just. There's no such thing as fairness or justice in nature. It is a human concept. It's a concept that we create together. There's no wealth that can be produced individually. You see, the neoliberals think that the person can be separate and a Robinson Crusoe figure. But they forget that Robinson Crusoe goes to that godforsaken island and recreates England. And then he finds Friday to have somebody to exploit. So <laughs> society, society uh, is on group Robinson Crusoe's island 
before Robinson Crusoe gets there, or at the moment he, he, he gets washed up on its shores. So we are social creatures. We are the result of a social process. Wealth can never be privately produced. Nobody has ever produced private wealth. You know, whenever we produce something, we, you know, either we borrow ideas from other people. Think about Google now, right? Every time you enter something into the Google search engine, you contribute to the capital of Google because Google knows what you have entered. Immediately, they have more information on what Russell Brand likes or cares for. Immediately, they can sell that information to others. Immediately, that increases the capital of Google. So you and Google have produced together capital. The, what capitalism does is that it allows Google to be the one that reaps the returns to that capital without giving you anything or to give society anything, even though society has co-produced Google's capital. So the, uh, you know, everything is produced. Yeah. Persons, language, aesthetics, music, and wealth are socially produced, right? And the neoliberals pretend that it is privately produced, but then the state comes and taxes. So they, they, they reverse the truth completely. So the, the, the point I, su I suppose I'm trying to make, uh, if I'm not totally lost already, um, is that um, there is no alternative. I'm using a Thatcherite expression. You know, Tina, there is no alternative to socialism because everything we do is a social process. What neoliberals and the so-called free marketeers demand on doing, they demand on usurping and effectively um, appropriating the vast amount of wealth that is socially produced, depersonalizing and individuating those who produce it, and creating barriers between people that in the end make a majority of people around the world Cry, to, cry themselves to sleep at night or use uh, opiates in order to be able to handle th their depression. So we have no alternative than socialism, uh, but we must make sure that you know, we don't work so that some so-called socialists create um, an industrial feudalism called the Soviet Union or whatever, you know, and imprison us in their gulags. <laughs> that would be preferable. I... Uh, I recognize what you are saying that we exist in relationship with one another that if you extract us from relationship with uh, other human beings with external institutions then we are nothing but awareness and interpretation via the senses once again this is an idea that has a spiritual correlative that the self is a construct, the self is an illusion, that to reify and fate the self is to engage in a false idolatry. I feel that much of the problems, uh, the, the fundamental problem, I believe, with the left is that it is unable to mobilize a potent myth because it feels mechanistic, because it rose at the same time of as industrialization shares its image systems, metaphors, and indeed some of its objectives with industrialization. I am minded of a quote of an American 
American Indian activist called Russell Mead who said when he was told that the Native uh, American people ought join the Marxist cause that he, he said for us capitalism and communism are merely different sides of the same coin both of them presume the earth as a resource both of them presume economics and industry as the sort of optimum expression of humanity and I love what you say about how neoliberalism requires a large state in order to disempower and control the majority that there can be as you said earlier socialism for the elites but when we talk about the how far progressed the uh, global corporatism is now and is uh, like a like something that's only 10 20 years old like google so embedded in all of our lives all of our psyches I wonder how we can engage people optimistically with ideas of change. You know, the, it feels to me that the, the, the function of secularism to extract organized religion, as it was then, uh, from the function of power has sort of created a, 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 a materialist um, teleology that is now kind of difficult to disrupt. I, I mean, on an individual level, it's going to involve persuading people, hey, you aren't just an individual. You are part of a community. Your individual happiness is not resourced from the stories you've been given by neoliberalism. It isn't working for you. This isn't something that you should consider just because of altruism, but look around you. We can, you, you as an individual, uh, the people that you love, your country, your planet is deteriorating and being challenged. You, you need to consider a new way of living, a truer way of living, uh, a scientific but also spiritual way of living. This is who you really are. You must awaken. You must awaken from the illusion of being an individual. I wonder, Yanis, what evidence you see in the left as it currently is that there are even the seeds of such a potent change uh, being sown. Right. Let's begin with the Native American who made the point that from their perspective, communism and capitalism were different sides of the same coin. Well, he or she was right. Because what was communism under the Soviet Union? It was a kind of industrial feudalism, as I put it. It was not socialism. It was not democracy. It was not what, you know, uh, Marx was thinking about. It's not what those who gave their lives in 1917 uh, fought for. <clears throat> um, in the same way that you had uh, um, the, the three-mile three island accident in the United States as a result of corporate greed behind nuclear power stations, you had Chernobyl in the Soviet Union. Um, so, yes, if, if, if you assume that communism is what the Soviet Union, the Union was, where everything, the only thing that mattered was steel production and, you know, the, the, the number of trucks manufactured, um, then uh, I can understand the, the Native Americans' uh, point. Uh, but from my education comes from Marx, doesn't come from the Soviet Union. I learned lessons from the Soviet Union, but, you know, when Marx is discussing communism, which he doesn't do very often because he was too smart to be drawn into, into a discussion of what socialism would look like. Um, he said that, you know, it's a, I imagine a world in which in the morning I grow vegetables, in the afternoon I fish, in the, in the evening I philosophize over dinner. Um, so the, the, I think the Native American would, would have a lot more sympathy with that 
perspective of what communism might be. Now, of course, for that, you need to have robots doing a lot of the work. Um, and I'm all for it, as long as the robots belong to society and not to a particular corporation, which, which is weaponizing it in order to divide and rule over the working class and to throw two-thirds of them on the rubbish heap of the dole and to exploit the, the rest of the one-third while trying to maintain a situation where one, you know, the 0.1% of the owners of the robots and the machines um, retain all the power and all the wealth and all the trappings of industrial society. So that's you know, point number one. Um, do I see any seeds of um, a spiritually healthy left around? Yes, I do. I do. I do not see political parties that um, allow those seeds to grow. <laughs> they usually, you know, um, uh, crush them uh, with ferocity, like they did um, with uh, the countless youngsters who entered the Labour Party under Corbyn. You can see now what Keir Starmer is doing. Um, but I do see it. Wherever I go around the, the world, I see people, that some of them don't even know that they're left-wing, but who do have this uh, natural predilection for uh, the principles of radical humanism. We don't, need to, we don't need to call it the left, we don't need to call it socialism, we don't need to call it communism, but the idea of, you know, the, the, uh, what Iris Murdoch, one of my favorite authors, uh, used to, to, to describe as the sovereignty of good. You know, that, is, that some things um, should be done and they are good for their own sake, for the hell of it. And not because you're going by doing them to accomplish something else. You know? uh, I see this all over the world, um, especially a young generation now energized by climate change. Um, they don't have a program. If you ask them, okay, so how are we going to run the world? How are we going to fund the new green energy that we need and so on? They don't have you know, a blueprint to give you, which is fine. But they have a hunch, and it is a correct hunch, that as a species we're being, we behave stupidly, like a, we behave, behave like a stupid virus uh, that kills the organism in which it lives. Um, and there, surely there must be a better way of using our technologies. Uh, I think that it is important not to turn against technology, but effectively to arrest it, uh, take it away from those who have it and who use it for their own empowerment and put it in, press it into the surface of humanity. Because, you know, we will need clean energy and that takes technology. Um, we're not going to go back to, a, you know, a compost-based um, economy. Um, uh, technology is fantastic. That's why, you know, I'm a, as, as I've told you last time we spoke, I'm a Trekkie. I believe in the replicator and, you know, in uh, doing away with the money system. That's Star Trek for you. When we, uh, when you talk about, or when we talk about these, uh, the boldness and radical uh, and how radical these necessary changes are I, my mind is i am drawn to questions of scale when we talk about society and change and the scale of change it, w one problem that occurs to me is to enact this type of change to oppose the kind of forces and interests that you are describing the those that are currently in power it would require huge resistance but if you create comparable monoliths i.e a powerful state 
then in a sense we run the risk of replicating the uh, the trajectory that we are already experiencing when we're talking about change Yanis, of this nature are we talking about dismantling the nation state Uh, what are we talking about creating Uh, and how does anarcho-syndicalism play into this are we talking about sort of uh, uh, of, uh, localized democracies global confederacies how how what does it look like do you feel well it's funny you should uh, ask me this question i wasn't going to do it because i'm not very good at self-promotion or promoting things that i've done but a book of mine is just coming out next week um and the reason why i'm mentioning it is because your question has been constantly torturing me for decades now the question of scaling up because you know 10 people can get together disappear somewhere in yorkshire or here in Aegina, and we can have a nice little commune and democracy works perfectly well uh, we like each other and so on um of course some tyranny can create you know we can create a sect that is tyrannical and horror and then everybody commits suicide but you know <laughs> so the question is assuming that a small group of people can run a commune beautifully. How do you scale this up? Uh, and how do you do it without uh, the all-powerful state, which is at some point corrupted and usurped by greedy, self-seeking politicians or bureaucrats? Uh, and how, how, would, how would markets work without capitalism? You know, what does it mean to say that we've done away with capitalism, but not with markets? Because we will always need markets. You know, people, you know, make some artifacts, they want to sell them. I mean, you're not going to stop them from doing that. That's not socialism. That's craziness. That's Pol Pot, you know, Cambodia. Um, so, about it was about 15 years ago when my partner and I um, said to me that uh, she's never going to listen to my criticisms of capitalism again or take me seriously because they mean sweet nothing, that's the expression she, she used, unless I sit down and write a book in which I explain how the world would work if capitalism had gone. So, you know, I've been resisting doing this because it's not an easy task. In the last two years, I, I sat down and I wrote one, and it's coming out on the 10th of September, in, you know, um, near you. Look, <laughs> will you allow me to show it? It's called Anatomy. Yes, please. Another now, uh, dispatches from an alternative present. It's a political science fiction where I try to answer... The, let, let me give you some clues. Uh, imagine a corporate structure where they are, there is no management. So, for instance, I've worked in one of those companies, so this is not totally fictional. I've worked in one of those companies in... Uh, near Seattle, in Washington State, in the United States, some years ago. And what was remarkable was that um, there, was, there were no bosses. Nobody told you what to do. It was complete flat management. Everybody did whatever they wanted to do. So uh, you know, when they told me that this is how they work, I just couldn't believe it. I asked them, okay, so tell me, um, how do projects get done? And the answer is, well, we have an intranet, an internet within the company, uh, we put posts up, somebody saying, I want to work on that, who wants to work with me? So whoever wanted to join Peter, you know, join Peter. And then they could leave. They had, um, you know, all their, their workstations, their computers and so on, were on desks with wheels, so they could move them around. If, you know, 
Uh, and I said, okay, but how do you decide who to, whom to hire? Well, they said, well, we, if, if one of us thinks that we need a graphic designer or a computer scientist, whatever, or an economist, no? um, we put again a post on the internet saying, I think that we should hire a graphic designer who wants to join me in a search. And yeah, three people go together and they put out an advertisement out there. They advertise the position. Uh, they shortlisted some people, they interviewed them, anybody in the company could participate in the interview, and then the whole company voted, do we bring them in or out? And I said, okay, how, what about pay? How do you decide who gets what? You can't all get the same amount of money. They said, oh, look, we have the, uh, the pie, the total revenue of the, of the firm is divided into four parts. One is fixed costs, you know, rents, computers, blah, 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 blah. Uh, that goes. The second one is a basic wage for everyone, from the secretary to the computer WizKid gets the same basic salary, uh, which was quite high back then in that company, but nevertheless, it was a basic salary. And how much that would be was something they voted on from different options. One person, one vote. Okay. And, and, and then they said it's a, there's a, uh, um, another slice for R&D, money we set aside for R&D. Again, we vote for that. And what is left over, the fourth slide, slice, is for bonuses. I thought, gotcha. Bonuses. Some, you need to have a management structure to decide who gets the bonuses. They said, no, <laughs> this is how it works. Every employee gets 100 merit points, brownie points, and they can distribute it to everybody except themselves, to anybody except themselves. And they distribute it on the basis of whom they think, whom they want to reward for their contribution to the company, whom they want to keep, really, because if they don't get the bonus, maybe they will leave. And these are the people that are adding value to the company. And then at the end of the day, when all these brownie points have been distributed, everybody gets a bonus, a share of the bonus pie or slice in proportion to how many brownie points they received. So yeah, this is how, so suddenly think about it. Imagine why a situation where a corporation has shareholders equal to the number of people working in there and each one of them has one share that cannot be traded. It's like a library card that you get when you go to university. It's very useful, you can't trade it. You get one, you mm -hmm. don't get 10. You can't buy them, okay? And then if you leave the company, you leave that share and you take part of the capital that, 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 that corresponds to you and you take it to another company or you create your own company, your own outfit together with other people. So think of that. The moment you introduce this very, very radical idea, capitalism collapses because suddenly, there is no distinction between profits and wages. Everybody is a profit sharer, and there are no wages. Secondly, there are no share markets. If you take share markets out of the equation, Barclays Bank, Royal Bank of Scotland, JP Morgan collapse. Because the, <laughs> the way these, these, the, the big banks work is they don't work from your current account and your savings account. They work by lending huge quantities of money to stockbrokers to financiers to do mergers and acquisitions. But if you can't buy shares, you cannot do mergers and acquisitions. Also, the large companies break down because if, you are, if you're going to have this kind of democratic structure, you can't have a company with 30,000 people. So naturally, it will divide and multiply into smaller companies. You have more competition, right? And if the central bank, imagine the Bank of England were to give each one of you folks in the United Kingdom or this, the European Central Bank, each one of us here in Europe, a free digital bank account. You know, with a central bank, 
what's the point of having an account with Lloyd's or Barclays Bank? So suddenly, share markets go, banking goes. Capitalism is gone. And instead we have, so, you know, this is how I, I, I try to imagine the other now that I've written about. Well done. Well done for finding a appealing and uh, appropriately fictionalized way of conveying that. I like the title Another Now, and I saw the cover, which I know I'm not supposed to judge a book by, that it did have a sort of somewhat, uh, it was reminiscent of the anarcho-syndicalist flag that you described in that there was a white half and a black half to it. I like the sort of high concept, the, the psychedelic concept. I mean, concept read the of, first sentence of, 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 of the book. Who would stand in your way, dear comrade? Okay. I remember, it's, this is a novel, right? It's a science fiction novel. So it starts as follows. A year ago today, we buried Iris in a red and black coffin, red for the revolutionary fire constantly blazing in her belly, and black to remind us, as she kept doing, of the irreducible dark side in us all. <laughs> there is an irreducible dark side. I'm trying to reduce my own dark side, as a matter of fact. I'm spending a lot of time on it. Um, but yeah, what is important, Russell, I about this is to, to create institutions that also help us reduce that dark side and not to maximize it. I recognize what you were saying. I recognize that the institutions we currently create, the systems that we create, highlight, exacerbate and promote the darker aspects of our nature, whether it is that our unconscious sexuality, our unconscious greed, what are called in the 12-step program that I operate within defects of character the shadow aspects of nature that are really survival strategies that have somewhat gone awry i was very interested in the um example of the uh, actual company that you worked at and how they sort of created a, a, a somewhat simple economic system i like that it included meritocracy but that meritocracy was underwritten democratically i thought that was interesting i also like that that as a system, it emulated uh, our anthropological roots in that there is one single project that everyone involved is pursuing with autonomy within those structures. I imagine that in earlier uh, in uh, instantiations of human societies, we would recognize that there are certain roles that are played by certain people, certain functions that certain members fulfill, some of which require collaboration, others which can be done uh, individually. I, when thinking about something like an uprising or even opposing establishment power. One obvious problem that occurs to me, and it's something that you have uh, extolled upon and explained even in this conversation, is the obvious fissures that exist uh, uh, among what would once have been thought of as the left. Most notably in the emergence of uh, the SJW social justice movement and how uh, abstracted and often opposed they are from the traditional working class or blue collar support of left wing movements who I think it's safe to say now feel wholly estranged from the parties that were at least um, superficially augmented to serve them. I was interested that you said earlier that, you know, that the Democratic Party of, of, of America never really had 
that agenda and that the Labour Labour movement in this country was corrupted as early as the 1920s because popular myth in the in, is that this sort of you know the 1940s was a great moment for the Labour Party with the National Health Service and that it wasn't until much later under Blair and under Clinton in the United States that the left wing lost that the left lost its mojo became castrated and became a kind of a as you say an imitation of Republican or Conservative parties respectively do you see there being the possibility of uh, like uh, how would you even just to resolve how would you do you think it's possible to resolve the fissure that exists between sort of the more metropolitan social justice uh, identity politics oriented uh, members of progressivism and the now left behind working class uh, blue collar people that now feel sort of not only resentful towards establishment power, but perhaps even more resentful to these kind of movements that make them feel culturally alienated and often demonize working class people as one of their dominant motifs. Way to ask me that question uh, three years ago, I would be a lot more optimistic than I am today because I saw you know, three years ago, this what, exactly what you described was happening in the Labour Party under Corbyn. The, there was an emergent coalition between, you know, urbanite, uh, more liberal left wingers, uh, with people in the north of England um, who were far more traditional um, blue collar workers or former blue blue collar workers that worried about, you know the reproduction of their material life um, a lot more than they worried about identity. Um, but look at, at, at the way in which Corbyn was brought down through the weaponization of identity politics, through um, a rather sordid campaign of disinformation and distortion, the whole you know, business about Corbyn being, Corbyn being an anti-Semite, or Sanders being a misogynist, uh, which is what was started within the, the Democratic Party to, 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 to find ways of, of creating discontent within the progressive supporting them. Uh, and they did it so, so successfully. So the answer to your question is that, yes, it can be done, but it is very difficult. And until and unless uh, younger, more liberal, more urbanite, and more upwardly mobile leftists can start paying their dues and be more respectful to those who have been held behind and left behind in the Rust Belt areas or in you know, the Clactons-on-Sea areas and the Bournemouth areas of the world. Unless we have a genuine you know, sympathy of one another, it can't work. What really, I mean, you know, I, I campaigned against Brexit, as you probably remember. Um, and yet the contempt within, with which radical left-wing good people, you know, my friends, you know, feminists, um, progressives, uh, members of the, you know, LBGT community and so on, the, the, the way, who were on the pro-remain side, the way with which they treated contemptuously, um, you know, people in Yorkshire, who had voted for Brexit. That really upset me. Uh, and, you know, uh, I'm all for, for instance, bringing down the symbols of um, institutionalized um, racism, whether it is changing the name of Yale University 
or bringing down a statue in Bristol. I'm, I don't have a problem with that. I don't mind it. But what we must understand is that when somebody is about to lose their job in a factory or they've lost it, it really offers them no succor. It offers them no um, satisfaction to hear that Yale University now is called something else. <laughs> it's interesting how that example cuts to the heart of the issue of symbolic cultural change versus meaningful economic change. And, and in a sense, it... Uh, ossifies that estrangement between working inverted commas traditional labor voters you know the labor party labor is a synonym for work for industrialized people working in industrialized jobs people who 50 60 years ago were told that there is such a thing as britain that britain is separate and it is worth laying down your life for for the reality of britain and are now being invited to casually discard this identity that was offered them as a sort of palliative for personal sacrifice. My sense is that when you give the example of an, a democratic uh, 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 or a corporate organization such as you worked in in Seattle, I wonder how that maps onto communities. I wonder too, Yanis, about the plausibility and, and I, with some optimism and, and in, if I may be clear, excitement the idea of standing under a or standing on a political platform that you have begun to outline and clearly you elaborate on in your uh, novel of that where you can list a manifesto that includes uh the ending of share markets the abolition of banks the re-empowerment of communities uh, uh work-based and craft-based economies, less time working, more time for families. That, that in a sense, a co correlative of that would be the end of globalization. Globalizations, the veins of globalization are the, the financial, global financial markets. And if those are cut off, then uh, you know you address simultaneously two problems: the sort of rise of sort of fatic retro nationalism and the uh, the kind of uh, the insidious onslaught of g uh, corporate globalization. So, do you is that something that you propose? Is that possible? And would you have to organise that from the, uh, the offset on an international level due to the scale of the project? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and the distinction I, I draw is between internationalism and globalization. We need internationalism to kill off globalization. Globalization for me, um, the way I understand it, is the complete liberation of capital, of money, to move unimpededly around the globe at the touch of a button. <laughs> the liberation of commodities to cross the US-Mexican border, you know, that is now, now has been for a long time an impenetrable wall for human beings. So human beings, it's quite remarkable. If you go to the U.S.-Mexico border fence, you see you know, thousands of people from Latin America um, in the shadow of that wall waiting for an opportunity to you know, jump it and enter the United States in search of work when through the various openings, whole um, train loads and truck loads of commodities um, move completely effort, effortlessly from one side of the border to the other. Uh, so 
I would like a world in which um, there are restrictions in capital movements and no restrictions on human beings moving around. Um, that for me is the end of globalization and the beginning of internationalism. I don't. I, I personally consider uh, borders to be a scar on the face of the earth, um, and uh, and this is the price we have to pay. These borders that are getting taller, uh, more electrified, and more impenetrable, the more capital and commodities are free to move around. Uh, so th th we need international um, solidarity. We need an international movement. Some of us are putting together what we call the Progressive International. Uh, on the 18th of September, we have an inaugural meeting, and that includes uh, my friend Noam Chomsky, Naomi Klein, Catherine Jakobsdottir, the Prime Minister of Iceland. Uh, the Bernie Sanders uh, uh, team are part of that. We have people from Nigeria, from Japan, and so on. Uh, because we need to start moving along those lines. But let me make one just final point. At more, at, I'm bringing it back to the more spiritual level. Um, in the end, in the end, uh, what really matters is that people feel that they're in control of their lives. You know, one of the most insidious aspects of the right-wing Brexit campaign and of the Donald Trump campaign is the fact that their slogans were apt. Yeah. We, we want control back. We want to get our country back. Of course we want to get our country back. Who doesn't want to get their country back? But the point we make is that to get your country back, we need to get our world back. And we need to get it back from the finances. And we need to get it back from the states and the bureaucrats because the COVID-19 now has shown the immense power of government. Government can tell you, you know, you're not going to get out of your home for the next 20 years, right? I'm not against the quarantine and the lockdown. But what I'm saying is that what the, the pandemic has revealed is the immense power of the state over us. Yes, uh, which can be used or abused or or whatever, um, and people need to have this sense that they are in control of power, um, and the way to do this is to combine economic democracy in the way I described it through the corporation that where every every employee has one share, and which gives them one vote, but also um, imagine a world in which in every county there are two zones. The commercial zone and the social zone. The social zone contains housing, businesses that are based on social principles, right? Like, like you used to have in, in Britain uh, council housing. Uh, and the commercial zone is utilized in order to make money. But it is owned by the people of the county. And they decide how much space to give to the industrial zone, to the commercial zone, uh, whom they're going to charge for letting them use that, that zone. And the proceeds from this commercial zone are utilized in order to build the social housing. And imagine where you have um, you know, um, an assembly, a county citizens' assembly, which is selected not by election, but by random draw, like in ancient Athens, so that you, you cut out the electioneering, because we know that elections are very good for the aristocracy. The, arist the aristocrats are far better, the powerful are far better at usurping elections. But imagine you have a random draw that uh, decides who is sitting on this uh, land council. And they make all the decisions after listening to different points of view by elected representatives, by business interests, by local communities and so on. 
and the, the you know the members of these uh, land councils can rotate again through random selection that way you have a community a political power uh, it it is a state but you don't have the all powerful state whose bureaucracy simply reflects the interests and the overall power of the powerful hmm yes i imagine well i don't know i will read your book uh, another now but i got from what i did uh, read in the description of your book that this is a, a a global revolution i wonder how those principles could be uh, exercised in uh, smaller communities with the impediments that they would likely face and the outright opposition that it would no doubt attract when we were talking momentarily about borders it's easy to see how the idea of borders and nationalism can get power and energy from the the feelings of fear particularly at a time of pandemic it's very easy to see how it's uh, you can uh, vilify migrants and migrate migrant labor how it sort of lends itself to image systems such as uh, parasites and virus and disease and in a way that it's hard to um depict when it comes to real power and the mobility and exploitation of real power that operates with the paradoxical freedom uh, opposed to the impediments of you know, human mobility. I think the, 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 the operative word here is hope. When, when we lose hope, then we tend to barricade ourselves in our homes or in our communities or behind national borders. So a hopeless people would always try to barricade themselves um, behind walls and in the process immiserate themselves, you know, make themselves very unhappy, starts, start, you know, hating each other and just generally going in the direction of uh, generalized discontent. Uh, but bring hope in and suddenly the walls seem less important. Uh, you know, there is a, a myth about ancient Greece and the Olympic Games, when um, a citizen of Corinth, let's say, won uh, the Olympic Games down in Olympia, uh, and he would go back, it was always a heap, it was, it was only men that participated in the Olympic Games back then, uh, he would go back to Corinth. What the citizens of Corinth would do is they would demolish part of the walls as a symbol that because this man has won on their behalf an Olympic event, they feel more confident, so they can knock down part of their wall. I think there's something poignant about it in there, about the connection between nationalism and hopelessness. Wow. <laughs> I think you are right. I think it is the politics of despair, the politics of despondency and of pessimism. And that however it is, however these stories are told, it's certainly stories of hope and of humanity for and uh, fraternity sorority unity familiarity between between us that uh, these are the narratives that we need to embrace i'm very very grateful to yanis for your time i'm very excited to, re to read your new book i always find it a, like a beautiful private tutorial speaking with you so i'm very very grateful to you thank you i'm grateful to speaking to you russell thank you i hope you keep well you and yours and that you know we inspire a little bit of hope in some of the people who listen.
Yes, we have done because I can feel it. I can feel it myself. I feel it myself. Although it did immediately become uh, co-opted by my ego when I thought I should probably be the person that stands for the British Parliament when we propose this uh, deconstructionist new revolutionary movement. As long as you do it as if it is a chore, that's fine. We need politicians who don't want to be politicians and who do it in the same way that we, you take the rubbish out at night um, because somebody has to do it. If you love doing it, then, you, then, then just stop. <laughs> You're quite right. As soon as my ego is involved, as soon as it becomes about glory, it's time to cease. Yanis, thank you. Thank you, Russ. That's the end of the podcast now. I hope you liked it. Remember to go on the mailing list. Remember, if you want to, if you enjoyed that, go and listen to the last one with Yanis or David Harvey, brilliant communist professor, or Naomi Klein, global ecologist. Is she, would you say Naomi Klein's a philosopher? I don't know how to describe her. Is she, is she an intellectual? She's environmentalist. A, she's an environmentalist, says Jen, and I'm inclined to agree. Or Ruth Kinner. What did we talk to of Ruth Kinner? Anarchism. Don't say that as if you did the research <laughs> yourself. Because I know it was either Demire or Charlie. Who did the work? What she means for Ruth? Yeah. Said Charlie. Right. Thought so. <laughs> Why, what were you doing? Having a holiday? Chomping Toblerone on an Alp? <laughs> thank you for uh, keep looking at the YouTube videos daily and remember to follow me on social media because uh, it's important for me to have a lot of social media followers because otherwise I feel insecure no because hey, it helps me to uh, directly contact you alright hope you enjoyed Under the Skin from Luminary <laughs>